Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. This is a difficult summer for the world. It is the summer when most of us seem to have realized that global warming, or at least climate change, is real. The West is racked with drought. Texas is burning up, as is much of the rest of the country, but so is Europe. There are droughts where we never expected them. There's heat where there shouldn't be heat. And so we are looking at the whole issue of the environment in a way probably that we haven't heretofore. I'm delighted, therefore, to have with me today from Francesco La Camera, who is the Director General of the International Renewable Energy Agency, headquartered in Abu Dhabi. He has the flag, says Irina, nice flag. Welcome to the broadcast, sir. Yes, Lovely to have you. Uh, do you think the world has woken up suddenly to the climate change reality, or is this my perception alone? I think that uh, today there is much higher sensitivity on the urgency to act, to act on climate change. What is the role of your agency? What can it do and what is it doing that will help? You know, the agency has been created to make the case for renewable energy. As you may remember, 10 years ago, one that renewables were considered really a niche without any future. So the agency has the task to promote the use and the deployment of renewable energy. And what does renewable energy mean to you? In here in the United States, it tends to mean to most people wind and solar and maybe if they're a bit more sophisticated, uh, hydro, and to some, a small minority, nuclear. What does it mean to you? Uh, surely not nuclear, but uh, naturally including geothermal and uh, ocean energy, uh, marine energy, all the form that's where we consider that the input is renewable into the process. You can't drive anywhere in the US without seeing windmills, huge wind turbines, some of them quite, quite large, some of them very densely spaced, and a lot of solar cells, either utility scale, which means a lot of them in one place, usually spread out over the land, or on rooftops. But we really haven't gotten very far with, with the others. We have for a long time had some geothermal, but it's a very small amount. And as far as I know, we have no viable. And there's there's a wind turbine, there's a water turbine in the East River in New York, but that's not a serious uh, a contribution. In the rest of the world, has the ocean potential as a generator of electricity been developed? You know, the, when we talk about ocean energy, we include, for example, also the offshore wind, that now is uh, is really. Uh, something that we see deploying uh, widely in many parts uh, of, uh, of the world, if you can say, especially in, in the North Europe, but we have seen also in the east part, northeast part of the US, and naturally all the other technologies related that are not still at the stage to be really competitive and economically as so the sea tide and other renewable energy. 
But when you talk about uh, renewable energy, I wished always not to look at the single technology, but look at an holistic approach, considering all the form of renewables. Naturally, it depends on the geographical uh, characteristic of the country, how the best mix could be. Could Here be in the United States, we're pretty far advanced in establishing turbines and large wind farms on the land, less so in the ocean. In Europe, particularly in the North Sea, there's been a tremendous amount of development of wind resources in the ocean. And some of these windmills, some of these turbines are gigantic, uh, up to uh, 15 megawatts, which is very large. If you think that most of those, the most Americans have seen are one or two turbines, go to 15, that is one big machine. But are there downsides to this? Uh, is there an environmental price that we have not calculated yet to wind and to solar for that matter? You know, that's why we talk about this technology, but on, to be honest with the US, they have a very interesting experience in the Northeast part where they've been able also to make an agreement between government, private sector, and trade unions to ensure the transition of workers from the old fossil fuel system to the new offshore one. So there is a, a very good cases that the US can, uh, can uh, showcase on the use of uh, offshore wind. And naturally, when we talk about renewables, well, the most important aspect to be considered, if there were a niche, now is the most competitive way to produce electricity. In uh, four-fifth of the planet, renewables is the most competitive option also compared with coal electricity. So this is making the change. And uh, if I can say, we see that the energy transition is already in place. And this because renewables has been decreasing the cost year after year. Imagine, in the last three years, every year a decrease of two digits is impressive, also in this very difficult and complex situation. And this is reflected in the new installed capacity. It's 10 years now that the new renewable installed capacity is outpacing the traditional one. In the last two years, 80% of new installed capacity is renewables. We uh, have talked about these things on this program over the past several years quite intensively and quite frequently. And so viewers and listeners to the radio broadcasts will know that uh, the, the advantages of wind and solar, they also will know something of the disadvantages, particularly when the wind doesn't blow, which happened last year in the North Sea. The North Sea, which in all of my life has been thought of as the windiest place on Earth, except the wind fell last year and didn't blow for a month or more, creating huge problems for the British. And we see in Texas, which is very heavily wind, although it is Texas, it is the home of an awful lot of hydrocarbon fuel, uh, it also has wind droughts. In fact, I was reading during the recent heat wave that one of the contributing problems to the tight supply of electricity was that the wind wasn't blowing. And uh, so you need a lot of storage. Uh, have you looked into storage and what do you feel about storage? Yeah, first of all, I, I wish to say this if I can, because many, many say that, oh, renewables are variable. 
So well, there's the wind, this is the wind energy. If there's the sun, this is the sun energy. But also when you talk about the base loads, but this is not an intrinsic quality of, uh, of renewables because also gas is variable. Also oil is variable. The only thing that makes them available is the logistic and the energy infrastructure organization. And the storage capacity. Yeah, you can it. store natural gas by compressing it and oil you put in big tanks. Yeah, uh, but you can make the same with uh, renewables. With the, with the storage, we can use batteries, but we can also, also other technologies that are emerging in these days. So the variability is not an intrinsic quality of renewables. It's something that depends on the infrastructure and the logistic of uh, the energy infrastructure. So it's possible, as you say, with the storage, with the grid, flexible, interconnected balance, to make the case for having renewables providing also the base load. Some American utilities have made a very interesting point, and that is for solar, largely fits the shape of their demand, in that it comes up with the first early heavy demand in the morning, and it's viable until about the middle of the peak at night, around six o'clock when it stops and the peak continues. But that's a very interesting way, I think, of looking at it, the shape of the demand. Uh, wind is more complex because we are not very good at predicting wind or not terribly accurately, and uh, it still is more art than science. And I say that as somebody who is a pilot and used to fly small aeroplanes and depended on weather forecasts. Wind is hard to predict. A large wind is predictable, like the Gulf Stream, but what's going to blow in the street here today? Yes, yes so. What you can uh, um, plan is to have a, an infrastructure, that means the grid, that may be flexible, interconnected, to overcome these difficulties. Just to give a, a, a short example, in, uh, uh, in uh, Highlands, South of Maine, new technologies, just two cylinders of steel with water inside and solar panel on it. So using solar storage energy, this system may provide for giving electricity 24 hours on 24 Where hours. Where did you say this is happening? South of Maine. Well, I look at Africa with a curiosity. I'm African-born, uh, but I look at it with a curiosity because sometimes Africa has led the way by, by leapfrogging, as with the cell phone. They never had to put in all the copper wires we have in America and Europe and the rest of the world, uh, essentially, because the cell phone came along before they had built all the copper wire infrastructure, and it wasn't necessary. Or, uh, so that's an interesting idea, and I'm hoping or looking that maybe we can see some leapfrogging in energy in Africa, because that's where the biggest demand, less satisfied, people need the energy, they're suffering from lack of it in every aspect of their lives, and worse to come with droughts and other upheavals, uh, and energy will make a huge difference, including just energy to pump water for irrigation. One of the very large uses of energy, which people don't think of, is irrigation. 
So have you seen anything besides what you've just told me about the solar pump, which I like very much, uh, anything else that encourages you that there will be a eureka moment in Africa? You know, that's uh, my experience is very practical too. When I was in my previous capacity in the Minister of, of uh, Environment in Italy, we have a program of uh, cooperation with, uh, with Ethiopia and we able to, to, to fund this, the setting of a pump, an electric pump with solar to pump water from, from the soil. Naturally, as you say, coming to your, uh, to your statement, uh, leapfrogging in Africa is essential. I'm always used to say that the Paris Agreement uh, uh, goal are at stake, especially in Africa and Southeast Asia because are uh, the two regions of the world where the demand of energy will be increasing sharply in the years to come. And there we cannot really talk about an energy transition. We are already talking to build the energy system. So it will be possible to leapfrog, to go for a cleaner energy system without passing through the uh, traditional one. Imagine in Africa is the best place continent for the producing of green hydrogen. Green so. hydrogen. Green hydrogen is pure hydrogen. It's not derived from a fossil fuel. It's derived usually from water, correct? Through and the electrolysis process. And yeah. Yes. So it's a it's pure you only, there's nothing left over basically afterwards except a little moisture. Yes, yeah, so water is called a green hydrogen, naturally. And the, blue hydrogen is when you take natural gas, reform it, strip out the hydrogen, uh, but you're left with the residue which you have to store somewhere. Perfect. And, yes. Right. Um, hydrogen has had a bumpy history, um, starting with lighter than, <coughs> than uh, light aircraft like the Hindenburg, uh, and yet hydrogen's been around for a long time. Now suddenly it is the hope for the future because it's pipeline, it's uh, it can be made from water anyway, if you have enough energy to start with, surplus energy. Um, is this the future? Is hydrogen the future? Yeah, it, uh, in our uh, scenario, hydrogen will be the 12% of the total final consumption in 2050. So we cannot say that hydrogen is the future. It's part of the future. I like always to say that the future will be based on renewables because for having the green hydrogen, we need to produce, as you say, a surplus of electricity. In our estimate, we need 30% of the electricity capacity that will be there for producing green, green hydrogen. In the work of your agency, um, in spreading the green message and introducing countries to green technologies, to a green future, where does nuclear power sit? You know, our estimate is that uh, uh, the two percent of the total final energy consumption will be provided by nuclear in 2050. We make a very simple uh, narrative of this. You know, everyone agree that this decade will tell us if it will be possible for us to achieve or not the Paris Agreement goals. So to limit the increase of the temperature by the end of the century to 1.5. So we need technologies that can make the difference 
in this decade. If we are talking about the traditional nuclear, it will take many years. I've been in Finland on a mission in a, a few weeks ago. It took 12 years to have the nuclear plant ready. And 12 years, the estimated cost, the beginning, they were triple, three times. We have problem with the waste of nuclear plant in Italy after we have closed the uh, nuclear plants in, uh, in already 20 years ago, we still don't have a definitive storage for the nuclear waste. So anyway, we need something that may provide answer before 2030. Nuclear is not going to provide an answer in this time limit. In the same time, we are developing an interesting option through the nuclear with fusion that could be already going on, we will have the first pilots by 2025, some more application by 2030, and who is working on the field, they say that by 2040, we can have some interesting of, uh, of new future nuclear. We've, we've had an interest in this country, and in fact around the world, uh, Europe has spent incredible amount of money on fusion, as has the United States, and it's always for the benefit of listeners and viewers, Fusion is the next step in nuclear, using the processes of the sun, basically, rather than splitting an atom to combine atoms and release heat that way without the environmental problems that some people associate with fission, today's technology. And the wastes, so it would be no wastes. Well, the waste, waste comes from everything we do. So we've got an awful lot of blades off these turbines that are made of really quite difficult to dispose of carbon fibers, so there's a waste problem there. But the main problem is to get the clean energy fast. Uh, anything else you see, as you look around the world, as you go about your business, this rather noble undertaking you have, um, is there anything else that excites you? Uh, or are you depressed by what you see in terms of the energy equation? You know. Uh... I am realistic, I tend to be optimistic, and uh, uh, I think that what's happening in this last period, I think is making clear to everyone, without any dispute, that the centralized energy system based on fossil fuel is not anymore reliable, is not capable to support development. This is something that can be very clear of what's happening in this last uh, month, uh, also through the Ukraine crisis. Where is your agency based in Abu Dhabi? Oh, it's based in Abu Dhabi because uh, uh, when I, it was established, there was a competition on, uh, uh, on where the headquarter was going to be established. At the end, the competition was won by the UAE and uh, I think was a wise choice and uh, it's strange that uh, in the Gulf that is the a place that's famous <laughs> for the production <laughs> yeah, yeah. of hydrocarbons. But for example uh, Mazda that is uh, uh, one entity of the, the UAE is investing in 44 countries in renewables. They have been uh, already working on green hydrogen, they are exporting ammonia 
So they are trying to 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 work. ammonia as a carrier for hydrogen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hydrogen uh, ammonia a, can can be a carrier of hydrogen. Yes, when you carry it by ship, ammonia is the solution. The ammonia go, is the equivalent of LNG when it comes yeah, to yeah, hydrogen. Yeah. But it's much cleaner, <laughs> much cleaner. <laughs> and then initially you can use the adapting the pipelines for making the green hydrogen going to the gas pipeline. You know, it's interesting because this debate we have five pipelines from North Africa to Europe. They can be adapted to transport green hydrogen. So there is this strong interest in the North uh, African countries to start working on, on hydrogen. At the moment, Europe is in crisis. It has a war and it has tremendous dependence on natural gas from Russia. And Russia is not being very gentlemanly about the supply of natural gas. Germany is in a particular predicament. It's closing its nuclear power plants. It's had to go back to coal. And even so, it is facing a catastrophic time for lack of gas. Next winter will be very terrible in parts of Europe, particularly Germany, perhaps. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's uh, exactly as you say. Naturally, we have to distinguish when we discuss the response to the Ukraine crisis and the gas, uh, the short term and the medium long term. So naturally, in the short term, they will cause many problems. Also, possibly reactivate the existing coal plant but what I'm, I'm assisting of is that countries are refraining to invest in the old fossil fuel economy because they are afraid to create stranded assets. And they will run, I think they will rush for a new energy system. Why? Because if everyone was agreeing that going for renewables could be competitive, economically, that can provide an input to the GDP, that can provide social contribution through more employment. But now there is a fourth element that in some way would be politically decisive, is that renewables is a way to escape the dependency from fossil fuel. 80% of countries today are net importer of fossil fuel, but renewables are available everywhere in the world, hydrogen can establish new trade routes for the energy supply around the world. Not to be argumentative, but I would point out there are dependencies, particularly in windmills and wind turbines, uh, on rare earths, which largely come from China, because rare earths are a multiplier, and the turbines are just five times less effective if they don't have the uh, multiplying effect of rare earths in their in their construction. So you move tend to move weight from one foot to the yeah, other. You don't always for, get it equally on both feet. Thanks for making this point because this allowed me to introduce our recent uh, work of Arena on this aspect. We have opened what we call a collaborative framework to discuss with uh, the government, with the private sector, this uh, uh, this uh, question of the use of mineral and rare earth. First of all, rare earth, the rare earth are not rare, geological. No, I, I'm aware of the, the difficulties the, of both. Yeah. The, the mineral are 90% recyclable. So naturally, 
there is a matter of concern. But with the right mining policies that will be compatible with environmental and social aspects, working on innovation, and we see how new innovation is coming to have less need of mineral for batteries. Now, people, uh, technicians are starting to uh, save uh, it through sand and steel. We were talking about the possibility to uh, uh, save energy through uh, steel and water. So innovation is there. Circular economy could contribute to this. So naturally, uh, the concern is there, but we have the instrument, the tools to manage these challenges. That's very interesting. Um, the challenges always produce the solutions <laughs> and sometimes new challenges as we have found with that's nuclear correct. and as we have found with many other things. But that's the excitement of engineering. That's the excitement of progress. Perhaps uh, of life. Of indubitably. How does your agency work? What is your budget? What do you do? You don't build power plants. You don't have a supply of rare earths. You don't <laughs> do any of those things. What do you do? So. The budget is, uh, is uh, a budget that is uh, every two years approved by General Assembly. And the of the United Nations? No, the country that are member of ARENA. Um, the membership okay. of United Nations is one thing, the membership of ARENA is another thing. We have but important under, point. We have 168 members and with uh, 20 in accession. So we are the only energy agency that we may consider to be global. That's, uh, okay. that's one point. So we have a fixed budget with a mandatory uh, obligation by, by member states. And the scale is the one over the UN. But we apply the UN in our own system. But uh, half of the budget come also from voluntary contribution for specific projects from some donors. And also now we are creating our own facility, Energy Transition Accelerating Financing. Okay, the acronym is ETAF, that we launched in the occasion of the COP26 in Glasgow, is an initiative that we share with the Abu Dhabi Fund for Development, that has been received support from the government, they have 400 millions. We have MASDA, that is joining, bringing another envelope. We have the Inter-American Development Bank, that is going to join with another envelope, and we are discussing with other entities. Francesco, yes. what you do? For example, in Africa, do you teach? Do you provide equipment? Do you provide financing? Do you provide planning? Uh, or none of those? Just to, to give you the sense of the scale of our, our efforts, we have supported 82 countries in the way to present the NDCs to Glasgow. Now we are working on the implementation. Excellent. Francesco La Camara, thank you for coming on the broadcast. It has honor. been a great pleasure to have you with us. And I thank you on behalf of our viewers around the world and our listeners here in the United States. That's our show for today. We thank you for coming on. Remember the environment. It's real. It's precious. It's here. And if you're anywhere in the United States, it's jolly hot, so take a tie off. We'll see you again next week. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, 
wherever you listen. We are there.